Storymakers. I'm Angie Powers. I'm Elizabeth Stark. And, and this is Storymakers Show. And we are so excited to be here with Gretchen Atwood, who is a, a former BWW person, uh, alum. Rugby player. A former yes, rugby yes. player with Angie. And, uh, and a new author of the book Lost Champions. We're going to hold it up, but this is an audio podcast. We probably won't hold it up because I think Gretchen is pretty familiar with what it looks like. All right. <laughs> but uh, it uh, is... Cool. I'll say the title though. Lost Champions for Men, Two Teams, and the Breaking of Pro Football's Color Line. Again, that's F O U R, not just for men. <laughs> Which I hope our listeners would know. But um, And Gretchen is the author of this wonderful new volume, uh, which was written up fantastically in the Wall Street Journal. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. And she is a former sports writer with a passion, as you can probably guess, for sports, social, social justice, and American history. And Gretchen Atwood lives in San Francisco. <laughs> Okay, so the question I have for you is now are you technically a historian? Were you always a historian? Is it a historian or an historian? You know, I'll let the, the grammar and usage nerds uh, address that question in particular. I've always kind of considered myself a lay historian. So, and that's, you know, just separating out a little bit from the more um, academic historians, which at one point I did aspire to be, but then I realized I uh, liked approaching history from more of an experiential and on the ground kind of perspective rather than from an academic perspective. So I think I've always kind of had that angle and I'll continue to have that. It's just that people take me a little more seriously now because I wrote a book. <laughs> which is awesome. Awesome. And also brings us to what are you working on? Yeah, and we'll start and then we'll segue back to a much deeper conversation about all of your exciting work. So um, I'll start. I am really in the most frustrating logistical place of trying to get Scrivener to do a few tiny last things so that I can mail my email my manuscript to my agent you know, this afternoon. So I'm very excited. Wow. <laughs> it's a good moment. That's a big step. Yeah. So it's funny to just get, you know, after like huge, enormous revisions of all kinds to now just be trying to get the chapter titles to look the way I want them to. It's not as exciting. <laughs> Angie, how about you? Well, primarily I'm working on taxes, but in creative work, I am actually I'm working on the paper I have to turn in for my final negotiated project for school for this master's degree. for my master's degree and then because you can't have enough non-lucrative master degrees <laughs> yes so. I know some people who could talk very very in-depth about that um, so wrapping that up but it also is um, you know working on the ongoing revisions of that particular screenplay I like to imagine I'm buffing and shining at this point but we will see a couple of people are reading it right now so we'll see how they feel about it so Gretchen we're going to get to talk a lot about the book that you um that you've just published is that primarily what you're working on right now or do you have another creative project lurking in the wings well, I'm mainly working on promoting the book and um, working on an adapted excerpt of some of the book for a, for a Cleveland area magazine, mm -hmm. and also pitching some op eds 
uh, related to the book. And of course, with all the stuff going on with Colin Kaepernick and kind of protests of the national anthem in the NFL, it's particularly um, timely given uh, my book came out. I know. (laughs) But then also I am toying around with an idea for what my next book might be, but that's uh, that given my interest in uh, history, sports, and social justice, uh, I'm looking into, and I have to find out if there's enough information to do this, writing about gay athletes in the 1936 Olympics. Wow. Sweet. And how that connected to the earlier gay rights movement in Germany and in Berlin in particular in the 19-teens and 20s, which is one of the most progressive gay rights movements. Oh, everybody loves a Weimar. Yeah, in in, uh, basically modern history and how it got you know, obviously stamped into the ground by the Nazis, but that's something I'm trying to find out more information on because I think that would be an interesting um, historical moment to tackle from the perspective of potentially gay athletes and gay activists in Berlin. Wow. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Yeah. So that kind of um, makes me kind of think about like the the way that you would approach a historical work. How mm-hmm. much time do you give yourself uh, to research and mm-hmm. um, and particularly because you're writing nonfiction, uh, what is sort of your idea development process? So you're, you're mentioning you're interested in exploring this idea. If you look back on your work as you did work on Lost Champions, mm-hmm. how did you start? How did you focus the idea? Well, I started because... I had always thought that I didn't know that much about the four guys in pro football in 1946 because I had always assumed they'd come after Jackie Robinson in baseball. And he, of course, uh, broke the color barrier in modern baseball in 1947. So I had always kind of assumed I didn't know that much about these guys because they came after Jackie. And that would be a kind of reasonable assumption that the guy who came first got more attention. Well, when uh, about 10 years ago, when I was reading Michael McCambridge's book, America's Game, he mentioned, and he had like maybe a paragraph or two, it's a huge book and an exhaustive history of uh, pro football. He had a couple paragraphs about Kenny Washington and Woody Strode getting signed by the L.A. Rams in 1946. Mm. So once I saw that date, it turned everything upside down. All of my assumptions about why I didn't know these guys were untrue. They actually came before. So then the question became, well, if they came before, why don't we know about them? Mm. So I wanted to, number one, figure out what their stories were and then find out and suss out why is it we don't know much about them. So that pretty much was what started it. And then the more I found out about their stories, the more interested I became and the more I you know, saw about not just their histories, but the intertwining of their history with Jackie. They all played football together on the 1939 UCLA Bruin football team. They knew Jackie well from that time. And in fact, they were quite surprised that Jackie had been, you know, kind of, quote, chosen by Branch Rickey to be the guy to break the color barrier because he had, he had been known at UCLA as a hothead and someone who would not turn the other cheek potentially uh, in conflicts with other people, uh, partly because when Jackie came to UCLA, his older brother had just died in a motorcycle accident. Mm. So he was, you know, 
he definitely had a lot of things going on. So it was very interesting because all three of these men knew each other. And then all three from the same time period at UCLA would go on and break these barriers in press sports. I wanted to ask you about research because I have a few students who are working on um, his, on nonfiction and historically mm-hmm. researched nonfiction, some of it uh, more, you know, family memoir and and some more removed but there's always and even for the novelist there's always a question of how much research to do and when do you stop and start writing or when do you stop writing without you know are you writing the whole time can you talk a little bit about that process of writing and when that came into the research project process and how you how you you know how you use the research to inspire you but not to stop you <laughs> well it, it is hard because if I'm left my if I leave myself to my own devices I will be at the li- like Library of Congress for like months and never come out so I am definitely prone to in a sense over researching and I will follow threads in, you know down here down here I'm one of those people who you know when you see the BuzzFeed articles that say here are the you know Wikipedia spirals you don't want to go down Mm -hmm. I'm like the person that spends like three days going down one of those spirals so uh, you can definitely research too much and I don't mean that you can research and get too much information but sometimes you can follow too many tidbits of information and use that to keep yourself from writing if you're not sure where you want to go so I think there's definitely needs to be some of both and for me I was researching, I researched a lot before I started and I think I used that somewhat because I was scared to get started. But then once I got started, it was a lot of, for me, a fluid back and forth. I would write some stuff, research some stuff, and a lot of times when I would write, other questions would come up and then that would yield other efforts on the research end of things. So then I would kind of go back and forth. And even, I mean, some of the stuff in my book I actually didn't find out until maybe a month before I turned in the final manuscript. Like, wow. like random stuff, especially because now a lot more of historical stuff is online than there was even five years ago. Stuff that I tried to find five years ago and couldn't, now I find some of that. Wow. So it's really, really interesting that I think it's, it's good to never stop researching, but you can't let it keep you from writing. Mm-hmm. Did you try to separate them? Like, did you have a writing time and a research time? Or did you do anything to help delineate? I'm never that organized. <laughs> I'm, like, seriously, I would sit down at my computer and I would start writing and, you know, try not to distract myself too much, but I'd keep some notes and then I'd, you know, go, you know, do some searches and, you know, look up stuff. And a lot of it was looking at, you know, looking at which sources I was using. I was writing about black history, so it was very important for me to use uh, sources from black communities that I was writing about and not use, you know, just the mainstream white newspapers from the time period and to use oral histories from the time period and not, you know, not just people reflecting now on what happened then. Yeah, I I love how you'll point out the way that the white newspapers spin an event mm -hmm. and it's not at all what what, what else, what other sources are, are showing is happening. Mm-hmm. And during that time period, especially like the the mainstream newspapers were not covering what was going on either in terms of 
you know, police violence in the black communities or in terms of sports or in terms of social justice efforts and campaigns. So it was, and even a lot of the violence that was uh, spurring a lot of the campaigns was not something that the white newspapers necessarily covered. So to really get an understanding of what was really going on for the football players on and off the field and then other people within their communities, you really had to look at uh, the black press in, in Los Angeles, especially there were three major black newspapers and they didn't, you know, all agree with each other and they didn't have the same take on the same events. So it was really interesting to take one event and see how um, the, each of them covered it. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, bet. <laughs> I bet. So the message is watch Fox News or only a single source of information <laughs> at this point to really feel like you're educated. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you don't have to worry about getting lost. In the, Actually, uh, Twitter. Just, just Twitter. follow yes, Twitter, people right. on Twitter and you're, you're pretty good to go. Yeah, headlines. Yeah. yeah. Well, I have a question pertaining to developing uh, moments in the book that come out of research. Mm-hmm. And so you you have this lovely just like you kind of kick off the book in the prologue so to speak she says aha uh-huh. um okay so kick off get it uh-huh. anyway Hilarious. um <laughs> explaining my whispered joke. jokes yes anyway um but it's a wonderful scene about kenny washington um and you know his opportunity to, to go play you know ball coach calls him over as a child as a child mm-hmm. and um you know you mention like his overalls in it, and, there, and there's strap of his and there's like this wonderful specificity in this scene that almost makes it feel fictional, mm-hmm. right? Because of the specificity, how do you take the information that you have and just as and a, create these kinds of compelling scenes and fictional in the sense of vivid, detailed, yeah. fully fleshed out, not uh, untrue, not untrue. Yes, thank you. Well, I think part of it, like with that particular scene reading it and being able to uh, kind of pick up on um, those details while I'm reading about those scenes. So that was definitely something mentioned, I believe, in Woody Strode's um, autobiography, Gold Dust. So part of it is paying attention to the details when I'm reading the various sources. And part of it is also uh, a little bit later well, later than the preface. Um, everything's later than the preface. Yes. Um, <laughs> the the scene in the last word cafe, mm-hmm. where the black sports writers, uh, led by Hallie Harding, are meeting with Rams management. Like that was a very interesting scene to write because um, there weren't a lot of the details. Like there is a photo from that meeting. And there is, of course, information I looked up separately about that particular club, the layout of the club, who was supposed to play at the club that night, because, of course, there'd be ads in the papers for in the black newspapers for, you know, days and weeks ahead of time for who was going to be playing at which clubs. Uh, but then also uh, looking at photos from there weren't a lot of photos from inside the clubs, but looking at them for that type of club and looking at even the marketing, like there were some pamphlets that existed at one of the libraries in L.A. that had, you know, the 
the menus and the kind of business cards from the from the location, so you could tell it was, it was a high end kind of place. Like you didn't just go in there with you know whatever ratty clothes on you might have on. And then even down to how patrons might react to the white men coming into this club on Central Avenue, that was something that uh, was talked about in some of the oral histories about Central Avenue in general and also the supper clubs and the nightclubs on Central Avenue. So whether or not a specific individual had that specific reaction, there were people who were there who were probably thinking, who are these guys? I don't recognize them, and the only white people who show up here are famous. You know, why is it I don't recognize them? I guess maybe they're not that important. <laughs> so it's kind of turning that idea of importance on its head, too, because I'm sure the Rams management, they thought they were extremely important. <laughs> and not especially, Grant. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. They thought they were important and probably thought they were, you know, just here to meet with these guys is kind of a, you know, nice thing to do, but you know, weren't, I think, expecting the level of pressure from these guys uh, to sign Kenny Washington. So in terms of those scenes, a lot of it came into researching everything around that location, uh, the time period, the music, the timing of the meeting, what little photographic evidence there was, and then, you know, some descriptions of what the conversations were. Yeah. And then did you have a sense? So for, for my students who are, are worrying about how to create scene, which of course makes it vivid and, and, and arresting, um, and yet how to be journalists who are adhering mm-hmm. to the truth, you know, and there's so much controversy around that, with especially with, uh, well, memoir and, and, and other things. But so do you have any advice or, or any guidelines you set up for yourself to say, OK, this is this is OK to include. This is how I can bring it to life but not cross that line? What? Where was that line? Well, I think for me, I, I tend towards, since my background was and is as a sports journalist, to err on the side of, if I can confirm it, then I'll put it in, and if I can't, I won't. And certainly in those cases, I had to loosen that up a little bit for myself, because the conversations that I have in my book in that particular scene are ones that I created out of the summaries that had been written about in other publications. So I didn't have, I didn't know the exact words people spoke. I didn't know uh, the exact drinks people had, but it was a nightclub and they would have been drinking something, not everyone. And, you know, based on the summaries that I had read, I created kind of that dialogue to kind of dramatize that particular moment. And I felt okay doing that because there were descriptions of what was talked about, even though it wasn't word for word. And I knew that the the crux of the important piece of it for me was definitely something that happened. Mm-hmm, yeah. um, and then to flesh that out with some of the other details. And I knew enough about the club itself and about the clientele and about you know, who else was there that I felt totally comfortable describing that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that if I had gone into, uh, like, let's say there hadn't been photographs and I didn't know what they were wearing, then I probably wouldn't have described what they had been wearing at the time because I didn't really know. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, there was one photograph, so you could tell all the men were in suits mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So, and, and also in the, I think in my introduction, uh, I mentioned that I did in that particular scene um, 
basically was true to what happened, but that I did create the dialogue. So part of it too is I was open about the fact that I did that. Yeah, and I think that was very helpful for me as a writer because I would feel a little squeamish at times if I weren't open about the fact that hey, this did happen. What exactly was said? Don't really know, but we know the things to these effect. This effect got said. So here's my take on what I think that was. Yeah, I think the History Channel does that all the time. <laughs> yes, here is Caesar, and <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I think that I would be more prone than most to cut it closer to right. what exactly I could verify. Whereas I think other people with maybe different backgrounds would be more likely to feel a little more comfortable outside of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that every writer has to kind of figure out where that is for themselves. And certainly if I weren't writing something that has a lot of historical weight to it, you know, I might choose something else. Like if I were writing historical fiction, mm-hmm. then I would probably give myself a, a little bit more leeway. Yes, it's historical, but it's fiction. Yeah, absolutely. So cell phones in the 30s would be okay with you because it's fiction. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So you sold the book on proposal. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about creating that proposal and what you learned about proposal writing? Well, what I learned was, well, first of all, what I was told, and it seems to be the case can't verify um, for everyone, but that nonfiction is generally sold uh, based on proposals as opposed to fiction is mostly sold based on manuscripts. So while a lot of my fiction writing friends were working on their manuscripts, I was like battling this proposal, which ended up being 70 pages. Mm, oh my God. So it almost felt like I was writing the book, even though I wasn't writing the book. And what was interesting about that is I wrote my initial proposal and uh, submitted it to a bunch of agents and then um, a handful were interested and then talked with them and the person who I ended up working with, her feedback was, you know, I I would like to work with you on this, but I think this needs to be uh, rearranged. Mm -hmm. Like if you're willing to do more work on this proposal and kind of really dig in and kind of change it up, then that would work. But if you want to go this route, then it probably wouldn't be the right, you know, book for us to work on together. And how did you, I mean, obviously you must have felt some resonance with her suggestions since you went with her. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I I appreciated that because part of what I wanted was for people to, you know, to work with people who want to push to make it better. Now it's, you know, if, if I hadn't, kind of agreed that it could have been better, then yeah, I wouldn't have gone with her. But I thought, yeah, those are ideas that I definitely think could help the book. And uh, so I worked on that and I actually probably spent as much time over the last, whatever, six years, eight years, whatever, Mm -hmm. (laughs) how depressing, eight years, nine years, uh, working on the proposal. It took me two years, I think, to to actually get the proposal to the place that I wanted it to be. It took at least a year to get the proposal into a place where she was ready to pitch it. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of back and forth on the proposal. And of course, with nonfiction, a 
a big chunk of it is, you know, having the chapters laid out. So you have to have a really good idea of the narrative structure you want to use. But of course, that changes as you get deeper into the writing and also more into the research. There is stuff that I found research-wise that changed some of the structure of the book and vice versa. So how close was would you say the book is to the, the final proposal that you sold to a publisher? I think it's pretty close. Uh, it, the one thing that I did do that was different was uh, in terms of the narrative structure. So there's a couple of things going on in my, in my book. So there's the 1946 to 1950 kind of narrative with these four guys and their two teams. So it's both teams and the guys. But then the way I start the book and intersperse the book is the 1950 NFL championship game, which is when these two teams played against each other. So that idea came from actually a developmental editor that I had worked with uh, early on. And I wasn't sure I liked that idea, uh, just to use that as kind of a narrative backbone or spine to go from like first quarter and this, and then, you know, let's backtrack to 46, second quarter, let's backtrack to 47. You know, it, it felt like a challenging narrative to try to pull together. And honestly, I'm not sure I did. <laughs> That's one of the things that was hardest about the book is I felt like I made a lot of progress on that, but I can't say that I nailed it as well as I would have liked. Mm-hmm. So that well, was, you're, it's, you certainly, you're, you're, I mean, I'm not a football person, but, but your wall street journal fan certainly loved that element of it. Right. I mean, it's 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 like watching football, I think, which for me is is you know a little bit more challenging than the social justice chapters. But but I mean, you're not the only one who felt that way amongst people I know. Yeah, but, but the football players clearly, I mean, the football fans love it, right? I mean, it's it's he talked. He said you were like like the sportscasters and the. Yeah, which is funny because I work with some sportscasters, so you know I was kind of ribbing them and being like, yeah. I'm- job which is totally not true i know a lot about this part of football history but not necessarily translated to today's Mm -hmm. tactics but uh i could have what i originally had planned on doing is kind of starting from 46 going to 50 and then having that one game be at the end and part of the reason the suggestion came to start with that and kind of use that throughout the book is uh the um, developmental editor felt like it would give the book more narrative drive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I I didn't think it didn't, but I wasn't sure it would because it felt like it also made it jump around more. And it definitely was a, a structural approach that I felt like was pretty challenging to take on in my mm-hmm. first book <laughs> because I was like, uh, I'm not sure I can really do this. And I tried to find moments and bits from, you know, 1950 that I could either end on in those chapters that related to something I was talking about with the other chapters and vice versa. If I ended something, you know, around something in 1947, I would try to end with something about either a player that I was about to talk about in the 1950 game or 
a particular moment or a football strategy that I could use to pick up again. So it didn't hopefully jump around as much as it So felt you just like kept this fun. all in your head, right? You're just like, just thinking about it and just, you know. You know, it's funny because I kind of did. And then I tried to externalize it. Oh, and I, I did that, you know, I wrote down a bunch. Of, I tried all these, you know, things they have in the books about, you know, writing and narrative stuff. So I had all my three by five note cards out and I wrote down things, color coded them according to, you know, did they relate to this team and this player and this particular thing? And, you know, I had them spread out all over the floor of my living room at one point and I was trying to figure out how to move between them and stuff like that. And I was reorganizing them. And I just kept reorganizing them <laughs> and moving them around, moving them around. I wasn't getting anywhere. And I'm just like, I need to write the, the, the damn thing and figure out where these hooks are. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of it was feeling where the hooks are. I'm like, I can be a very analytical person, but I'm much more of an emotional person. So for me, I'd actually be in it and see how it felt. Yeah. When I, I was looking at the actual material rather than kind of the representations of the scenes and the like shorthand for all of it. And I even had a whiteboard out and I was drawing stuff on the whiteboard and timelining out everything. And it just, it's not the way my, my writer brain works. I have Uh to get into it. So I think people just need to, like, I had to just figure that out for myself and probably whatever I write next, I'll probably try other things and just, see what feels like it works and then keep going with it mm-hmm. yeah it's that constant search for making it easier than it actually is to write a book <laughs> <laughs> yes yes and i'm always amazed when i read books where they it's so tightly woven together and it feels like they it, it goes so well that they must have planned it out this way and i realized i was getting stuck on the plan it out this way mm. and like i need to plan it to the you know, nth degree for it to work. And that's just not how it works for me. I can't plan to that degree. Well, here's a question I have, and I I hope I can Mm -hmm. articulate it, but because I'm not a a big football fan, I mean, I'm not deeply sporty, let's just say. Um, (laughs) But I'm interested in how, with what fascination people watch games. Mm -hmm. And like story, games have a kind of set structure and a set of rules that happen every time and yet each game to its fans feels fascinating and new i mean there's mm-hmm. even only a certain number of outcomes and right a range of scores and things like that and yet it's it's wildly gripping to people mm-hmm. and i'm it depends on how that game is going though i think you know people mm-hmm. leave games that are total blowouts you can watch the audience like you know leave the stadium when especially for la dodgers games yeah oh yeah if, because if, of the traffic they always want to beat the traffic yeah so it's like what's what's is it worth sitting through but it sort of speaks to what you're saying because the truth is i think you watch well you can speak to this but i think there's other reasons besides outcome that people watch the game. oh yeah but i think it's the the nature of story and the fact that it's unscripted yes like there you don't know what's going to happen and we'll see you know games where the the craziest plays will happen that you know we as writers wouldn't even come up with like in one piece um one of the scenes in my book describes uh i think it's a 1937 usc ucla game and uh the center for usc snaps the ball and it caroms off the fullback's head (laughs) and ucla recovers it and that's the start of this comeback they have and 
you know, number one, if you put that into a story that you're making up, people would just be like, that's too cheesy. Right. <laughs> and then other people would say, that's not real. They wouldn't, like, the fullback would at least catch the damn ball. It wouldn't bounce off his freaking head. But no, in fact, it bounced off his head. <laughs> so it's things like that that, uh, especially as things are more and more planned out, that I think really attract people yeah. to things like sporting events, because even though there are all sorts of rules constraining what's going on there's an unlimited number of random things that can happen mm-hmm. i'm probably so the most in famous yeah. of which is the cal stanford game in the oh, 80s you had right bring that up, didn't you? <laughs> you had bring that up. and and i will say no idea what you're talking about 1982 <laughs> yes i can say 1982 stanford was winning john elway was quarterback it was a good year for us being a Stanford alum. And uh, Stanford uh, kicked the ball, and Cal made like five or six laterals in order to score a touchdown on the ensuing kickoff and therefore win the game. And because Stanford and all the fans had expected that we were going to win, they were all half on the field. And the band, the infamous and my favorite Stanford band, was in the end zone. And so the Cal player comes running through scores a touchdown and basically lands on top of the trombone player that that i remember yeah Yeah. so there's something i guess i'm just curious if you if you felt like you learned anything as a as a writer from the kind of action of a play-by-play or from you know that the the high stakes and the unpredictability of a game yeah yeah but i think because i've been a sports fan my whole life i've probably unconsciously brought that to my writing anyway to some degree Mm -hmm. uh, just because that's part of the kind of experience of you know stories and outcomes and things especially in team sports where everything can impact everything else that uh, I've probably brought to my sports writing anyway because I come to it as a fan Mm -hmm. Um, so much so and I think that's one of the reasons like in the uh, Wall Street Journal you know review of my book like one of the things I liked about what Greg Easterbrook wrote is he's like you can tell she's a fan Mm -hmm. and that she loves the sport and I was coming at it from a, a point of this is really interesting to me I love looking at it reading about it watching it talking about it and you know some of the stuff that's promoting the book what I like about it is I get to talk about all this stuff yeah and you know again you know in my personal life I don't have a lot of people in my direct life that are huge football fans that I can talk about this stuff with so being able to talk to people about it who are also interested I mean that's where the bond of fandom happens is we just geek out on this stuff and remember that time that guy did that remember what happened there and it's a lot of fun that's great okay it is now time for that part of our podcast known as steal this based on the premise from T.S. Eliot Eliot, who I always want to call D.H. Lawrence and I have no idea why it is those initials they throw me off every time T.S. Eliot's uh, quote that says, amateur poets borrow, professional poets steal. (laughs) And so we're going to talk about what we're going to steal. Sometimes it's stuff. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it's not. (laughs) 
I have two things this week, so I'm going to start. You launch. She's going to model for us. One is almost really more of an example of steal this than a thing I want to steal, but I um, picked up a from the library yesterday for the kids, I picked up a, a new Peanuts collection, and I didn't really look at it. I just was like, you know, there aren't so many new Peanuts collections coming out these days. So I grabbed it <laughs> and uh, brought it home. And this morning when Charlie and I were looking at it, it's a tribute. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, all these different cartoonists, and my kids kind of know, that's the person who did that book. Oh, that's the person who did that book. Uh, and, and so it's these tribute cartoons that take the Peanuts and do different things with them. I mean, they have Matt Groening doing like a life in hell with Charlie Brown <laughs> kind of thing. And anyway, it's it's really wonderful. So it just kind of encourages me to remember that really you you can't I mean you can't steal something you can't borrow you always have to you always have to make it your own and to see these incredible drawings of your know, realistic snoopies or so know. is that the end of that portion of our podcast no <laughs> it's just another little it's a angle. logical fallacy that we will continue that's right <laughs> I was moving it was moving to me um, and then um, you know I was reading a book this week that had very short chapters and um and I realized that like the history of love has very short chapters. Anthony Doors, All the Light We Cannot See, has very short chapters. It's actually kind of a thing. My book has pretty short chapters too. Yeah, although these are like two pages. Oh, okay. I mean, yours are a little a little longer than that. But yours I'm slightly longer. But yours does a beautiful juxtaposition, moving between things. I do really like that. And pictures. Yours has pictures. Yes, which I also <laughs> diagrams and I diagrams. Know. Which I, I love actually, that. I definitely want to steal that because I want to put some diagrams of eye movements into my book which is probably a lot less exciting than football to most people but anyway um so I I went in and actually this is the thing I did in Scrivener which is why I need help with the Scrivener right now is I I created like so now I have like you know 95 chapters um in this in this book and I just you know I just made lots and lots of little chapters now that may evolve and move into something else as my agent reads it and so on but um, I realized that where I used to think of a chapter as the thing, just like I used to think of a television show, the end of a show, an end of an episode, at uh, the end of a chapter is somewhere you stop and you like put it down for a while and go, you know, and now it's like the end is just like, turn the page. I want to know more, right? So it's like binge watching, this like binge chapter reading. So I kind of am using chapters a little differently, inspired by those books that I love and also this um, this new book by Gail Foreman, who I'm going to be talking with on Friday in Santa Rosa Copperfield. So this will come out Thursday. And if anyone wants to pop over to Copperfield's Friday night, I'll be there talking to Gail Foreman and her short chapters. <laughs> and how about you? Uh, well, let's see. I've been focusing on... Jesus, what have I been doing? I'm trying to think of what I could steal. I've been stealing Jesus is what I've been doing. And you know what I want to do is I'm going to steal, you know... Um, You've been really into the champion mindset, and I feel like it's something oh, yeah. that Gretchen might, even though you've talked about it before, might be really interested in. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's not the champion mindset. It's how champions think, and it's... Uh, oh, interesting. And he sort of breaks down a variety of different uh, kind of personality attributes, and I'm interested in how they relate to art and the artistic thing, because I'm always interested in how people have the just sheer hubris to create. 
on any level. Do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, I'm a person who does it, but I also have like this severe back and forth. And yet you read about people and apparently he worked with like LeBron James and LeBron James came to him and said, I want to be the best basketball player ever. And they kind of broke out. What would that mean? What do you need? How do you get there? You can't get the stats you need if you're on a team that doesn't win. You can't do, you know, and so they actually just kind of broke down all these things. And and he talked about um, Pat Bradley, who's a LPGA golfer. And so talking about how she was like, I want to get in the Hall of Fame. And she was already like mid thirties and like not cracking even into the masters. And he's like, okay. And she is in the Hall of Fame and she is, she's kind of achieved those goals. But um, one of the things that he sort of talks about is optimism. And so he's got optimism and self-confidence and optimism is a general outlook on the world and self-confidence is a uh, self-perception about your ability to do the thing you are seeking to do and um, you know how do you develop that if you didn't already show up with it so I'm not stealing anything. Fake it. Fake it till here's you my make it. here's my question. What? Don't think too much. Yes. Well, that turns out to be the answer. Muscle memory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and creative muscle memory is a thing, just like it is a thing for athletes. Yeah, I love that creative muscle memory. Mm-hmm. That might have to be the uh, the title of this episode. Yes. <laughs> How about you, Gretchen? <laughs> anything you want to steal? Well, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned the the short chapters because. One of the things, uh, and this was more of an idea in talking with people that, that I kind of stole from my book and want to continue to, but when I was thinking about how do I talk and write, particularly about um, in depth about how football as a sport changed during the time period I write about, as well as these guys' lives on the field, as well as what was going on with civil rights off of the field, uh, you know, to me, it didn't really fit into a typical kind of book structure. And I remember talking with a friend of mine who was saying, well, it's all just different kinds of stories. So mm-hmm. you have to craft the frame of the story around what the story is, rather than trying to fit your story into an existing frame. So, you know, and there were people who, you know, this didn't come from my editor or anything who probably would have been like, you know, you shouldn't put football diagrams in a book that you want everyday people to read. That's going to turn them off. Although people who I talked to when I showed them what I was doing were just like, wow, I would understand this better if you drew it out. Yeah. No, I was like, thank you. Thank you for the chart because I can understand that. Exactly, exactly. And it's hard to understand if you're not someone who is already kind of familiar with thinking about sports in that way. Mm -hmm. So it's something that's both typical of kind of hardcore fans, but also helpful to people who are not hardcore fans. Um, So in terms of things I would like to steal that I haven't, uh, I think how to craft a big picture kind of idea and narrative around historical elements and forces in society. I think that um, like the new Jim Crow by Michelle Mm -hmm. Alexander does a really good job, especially around framing it around this being a new Jim Crow, the incarceration, mass incarceration of black and brown men in particular, uh, and framing it as a Jim Crow kind of state I think is something that I want to do more of in my future writing is to 
find a way to kind of express that in a in a simplified statement and something that I feel like I didn't quite achieve with this particular book. Mm. Um, and then um, see what was Shock Doctrine by Naomi Klein was another one where I felt like she synthesized so much information into this is what people are doing. They're using in in fact creating these kind of moments and these uh, kind of episodes in order to take advantage of them in a very specific kind of socio-political economic way. So I think to to frame that as a shock doctrine was really, really smart. And uh, so I think from those two books, and those are the two books I use as great examples of taking a really what could be a complex big picture idea and simplifying it so that the reader can understand what you're trying to say. I think I would like to be able to do more of that in my future writing. What is that Einstein quote, everything should be... um simple simple as it needs to be but no simpler oh as simple as it needs to be or something like yeah that. so there's like a, i gotta find that quote but there is that whole thing and it actually kind of put me in mind when you're talking about the way you take a complex idea simplify it but then link it and that's mm-hmm. sort of technically a high concept mm-hmm. so you take your so that's what you're looking for is a socio-political uh, high, concept. high concept history. Expressed well, in two or three words maximum. Yes. yes. So let's see. For your next work, it's going to be something like um, Sexy Sporty Weimar. <laughs> All right. So I got Hot you. Hotter, gayer. Yes. There you go. Nice. Nice. Um, so all of these links and perhaps even the Einstein quote will be at storymakersshow.com for people to find. And um, Gretchen, how can people find you out there in virtual reality and maybe of upcoming events? Well, I, I do have a website, GretchenAtwood.com, and people can find uh, information there about how to order the book, obviously Amazon and IndieBound and other uh, sources online, but also in some bookstores, I'm not sure exactly where, and uh, I'll put upcoming events there as well, and actually Friday, I should have an interview with KQED coming out on California Report. Oh, nice. So hopefully that will be out (laughs) this Friday, and it will be on their website as well, so people can look for it there. Oh, fantastic. Well, thank you so much. It's just a thrill to talk to you. I look forward to having you on with the gay book. Yes. (laughs) And and everybody else, please go to iTunes and Stitcher to subscribe to Storymakers Show and to rate us so other people can find us. Mm -hmm. And so you can let us know how much you love these amazing people we bring on to talk to you about writing and life. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Gretchen. It's so good to see you. Thank you, guys. Same here. (laughs) 